You may or may not be aware of the fact that the man whose story is at the center of the George Clooney film, Good Night and Good Luck, lived for many years right here in Davis. Milo Radulovic currently resides an hour away in Lodi, but we're pleased he's come back, as it were, to speak to KDVS listeners. In 1953, Mr. Radulovic was a 27-year-old lieutenant in the Air Force Reserves, where he worked as a meteorologist. McCarthyism was still at its height in America, and what that meant in this case was the military, smarting from McCarthy's charges it was full of communists, was preparing to expel the young college student and reservist, not because he himself was under any suspicion, but rather because his father and sister were civil rights activists with alleged leftist leanings. Facing discharge over allegations he was somehow a potential security risk owing to what sort of newspapers his father liked to read, Mila Radulovic challenged Air Force efforts to drum him out of the service. Such efforts brought his case to the attention of Edward R. Murrow, the famed CBS newsman. Murrow had been itching to take on Joe McCarthy for some time, but management at CBS, including founder William Paley, were reluctant to go after the powerful senator and his many allies. With the case of Milo Radulovich personifying the worst type of excesses McCarthyism had brought to the nation, Murrow and his producer, Fred Friendly, set out to tell the country about what they called the strange case of Milo Radulovich on the See It Now television program. So it was that our guest today became a household name in 1953. George Clooney's film, Good Night and Good Luck, revisited this political battle last year on the big screen. We're very pleased to have Mila Radulovich join us to talk about the film and the realities of political paranoia. Mr. Radulovich, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hey, thanks a lot. Listen, I, I, I was a Davis citizen for 15 years over on Cornell. I fell in love with that uh, town. And uh, so my best to all you Davisites, including all you students. Now, someone once said that uh, living well is the best revenge. I'd, I'd like to start out by pointing out that despite finding yourself in some dire straits back in 53, you, uh, you dodged censure, took a job locally as a meteorologist, and I've had, from what I gather in speaking with you to prepare for this talk, a, a pretty good life since then. Uh, in, in a way of a kind of, kind of a uh, peripatetic life, really. Uh, my wife at the time, uh, Nancy, we all we moved to uh, California looking for a job. No way. Nobody would hire me, even though I was reinstated by the Air Force. Uh, finally, uh, some small private little company uh, called North American Weather Consultants hired me, and they didn't care about my uh, security thing or any, anything like it. It was it was a meteorology job. I was not a meteorologist. Ten years later, I, I, some inexplicable reason, I don't even know why to this day, the uh, National Weather Service sought me out and they, they offered me a job in Rhode Island. I stayed with them until I retired in 1994. I realize you became sort of a famous person against your will, but wouldn't it have been more difficult if you'd actually been drummed out of the, uh, the Air Force? Well, what happens to people who are uh, accused of being disloyal? That's what yeah. happens. You, you, you're, you've had it. That's basically what it means in terms of employment. You know, Look what happened to the Hollywood Ten. Look what happened to many, many people who drummed out of their... Uh, out of their professions, and uh, especially professors, uh, teachers, uh, people of uh, that type, that intellectual types that uh, uh, no longer found themselves employable or whatever else. So that's what would have happened, you know. I would have, I would have had it. Well, can, can we review for listeners, some of whom may not know, uh, about how it was that McCarthy got some rather amazing political mileage out of leveling charges of disloyalty here and there, being a communist here and there, 
And But despite his constant accusations, he never produced names of people who were working to assist the Soviets in the 1950s. So can you, can you describe the atmosphere in the country then? Well, somewhat like it is today, in terms of uh, fearful to speak out, uh, to watch very closely who you're talking to and who your friends are, who you associate with, uh, for fear of being labeled a communist or a communist sympathizer or a pinko or a a lefty like today, they made a dirty word out of the liberals. Mm. But uh, I'm sorry, but the liberals uh, stand for life, I think, in my opinion. Liberals stand for the Constitution and so forth. That's another story. But, uh, yeah, the, the atmosphere was uh, was fear. Roosevelt said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, that was fear in those days. Cold War, hydrogen bombs all over the place. Rosenberg's executed that same summer of 53 and on and on and on. And McCarthy was just a, a demagogue, period. A lot of, he held up a list of 208 names or something. These are all communists in the State Department and so forth and so on. As it turned out, not uh, that was all BS, you know. Yeah, it always struck me odd, Mr. Radulovich, in studying this about, about the, that era, that, uh, of course, obviously there were agents in the U.S. who were giving atomic bomb and hydrogen bomb secrets to Stalinist Russia. That, that's undeniable, and yet they seem to only find peripheral people like, like, like the, um, the Rosenbergs. But, but, of course, they made life very difficult. People like, say, your father, who they you know, thought was looking at the wrong newspaper. They charged him with reading a, a pro-Tito paper right after the war. And, and speaking well of the so old Soviet Union during and after, right after the war, this all took place in the late 40s, you know. So he was actually charged with, with that? I mean, how is that a crime? Ask them. They charged <laughs> it. Wow. The United States Air Force charged my father and my sister. They were neither was in the Army or in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force. And my, the, the thing against me was I was related. Wow. By blood. Wow. Guilt by blood relationship, that's what my lawyer said. I understand you never actually met uh, met Ed Murrow, but you worked with his producer, Joe Wershba, who's the Robert Downey Jr. character in the movie. How, how did the CBS team approach you? Well, because the Detroit News was the first one to break the uh, break the news that uh, I was being uh, charged as a security risk and being brought before a military tribunal. And uh, that that item hit the front page on the Detroit News in September of uh, 53. Murrow uh, found that article, you know, article was a whole front page almost, and uh, that set him off on a, it gave him the impetus to, uh, uh, you know, to go ahead and look into this. Here's the all-American boy, you might say, he didn't do anything, he had the wrong relatives. He sent out the crew, uh, Joe Wershbaugh and uh, Charlie Mack, the uh, cameraman, and they interviewed the whole town. They just didn't interview me alone. They interviewed the whole town. And that was shown graphically in the See It Now episode, half-hour episode, uh, October 20th, 1953. But the press, mainly, tribunal was underway in late September. The press was, was uh, you know, talking about it. And, and the, uh, the uh, military colonels didn't like that at all. They wanted me to... At one point, they said, well, you denounce your family, and you'll be okay. So that's something I could not could not accept, and who would accept that anyway? Well, I'll, I'll wager if good luck and, and good night wins the Oscar, that it'll be out as part of the DVD package. That would be my suspicion. It really sparked a resonant note throughout the nation.
I think many people see parallels between the times we live in now, where your, your judge is either being with, uh, with the Bush administration or with the terrorists, as the same sort of equation taking place back in the 50s. Yeah, you know, that they're with me or against me or black and white, uh, you know, like another thing I think that's very significant about Murrow, journalism, that's what holds the politicians accountable. How else can you hold the uh, power structures of, of any administration, not just this one, accountable? From what I can see, it looks as though Murrow, uh, Murrow's broadcast uh, was followed by the, the Army McCarthy hearings with Joseph Welch challenging uh, McCarthy. And it sounds as though like the broadcast on See It Now of your story was sort of the beginning of the end for McCarthy. I think that's a general feeling. There is a very, very good book written by Mike Granville, who's a great writer in Michigan, called To Strike at a King, and that's readily available. However, uh, that has not has been very under-publicized. It was uh, published in 90, late 96, early 97, and that it specifically deals with that whole period, my role in it, Murrow's role in it, and, and journalism in general. And there's a new a companion book to Good Night and Good Luck coming out, I think around the middle of March, called, I think it's going to be called Good Night and Good Luck. And there's a lot in there about myself and, of course, about Murrow and film and technical details. The whole script is in there and so forth and so on. So those are, there's a couple of reference books there that I think would be very valuable for anybody. I want to just note in closing, R.E. Grasswich noted in his Sacramento Bee column that audiences at New York's Lincoln Center gave you a standing ovation when Good, Light, good Night and Good Luck aired there. And that, just, that has to be a good feeling for you after all the difficulties that you went through. Well, it's, it's very rewarding, of course. But it's gratifying because it's the American people. Oh, my God. An overused term. But it's the people in general that are responding to this. Not to me. They're responding to, to the message, for example, of good night and good luck. Here's another point. In Berlin, I, I didn't know this, but I was, I was called up to the stage uh, to give a, a impromptu speech. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I did. Uh-huh. And uh, I got a standing ovation from 1,000 people. And these people, a lot of them were Germans, a lot of them were uh, international people, Americans especially, and uh, all kinds, British, French, you name it. And uh, anyway, there's another episode. I, they presented me uh, with a, uh, a an award to uh, carry to uh, Clooney, because Clooney was supposed to be there and he couldn't make it, uh, to Clooney and Hislov, uh, an award that, you know, good night and good luck being voted the most valuable film of 2005, uh, George Clooney and uh, Grant Hislop, and I'm going to haul it down on Santa Monica. All right, well, we hope to see you on national television, uh, Mr. Dulovich, when Good Night and Good Luck takes the Oscar. That would be our hope. Thank you for speaking with us, and hope that maybe post-Oscars we can have you just say a few more words about how what happened down there at the, at the ceremony. Sure, any, anytime, anytime. It's my privilege to talk to you guys. All right. Yeah, good night and good luck. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks again. That's it for today's show. We would like to thank very much our distinguished guests on today's program, the legendary producer and writer Norman Corwin, as well as Milo Radulovich, the man whose life was the inspiration for the movie Good Night and Good Luck. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I am your host, Douglas Everett. 
Stay tuned now for Todd Urich to follow with his program, Hometown Atrocities. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock.